Welcome to the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast, where we help urologists and staff achieve peak economic and practice efficiency so there is time and energy to focus on patient care and a happy life. I'm your host, Scott Painter, with my co-hosts, Mark Painter and Dr. Ray Painter. Today's episode is brought to you by ModMed. Do your EHR and PM adapt to your style of practice? The ModMed EHR and PM do, with benefits like remembering preferences and automatically suggesting documentation and billing codes. Urologists voted ModMed the number one urology-specific EHR and PM solution available. Built by urologists with input from yours truly. Stop wasting 60 minutes and 200 for each of your open or no-show slot. Go to modmed.com slash prsnetwork. Set up an appointment with the team at ModMed Urology and shift your urology practice into high gear. Imagine a solution on a tablet or the web that works seamlessly with revenue cycle management, analytics, telehealth, payment processing, patient engagement tools, and much more. ModMed is transforming healthcare by placing doctors and patients at the center of care. Welcome to episode 181 of the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Painter, with my co-host, Mark Painter and Dr. Ray Painter. And today we want to answer a few questions that came into the community and our Urology Coding and Reimbursement group. So we want to tackle a few frequently asked questions. But first, we'd like to just share a little bit about and, and I want to get Mark and Ray's thoughts, but share a little bit about our experience at our recent seminar in New Orleans. As a matter of fact, one of our FAQs comes from one of our attendees. Mark, your thoughts, just general takeaways from the seminar in New Orleans that, w- that occurred in the end of January of 2024. It was, it was a great group. We had a lot of questions that were really focused on a lot of the new issues that we've got surrounding coding and some good discussions around office flow and some of the bigger issues impacting neurology. I thought it was a great conference overall, some decent, some good suggestions from the audience in ways that they were doing things. Nah. It's always good to have a couple of days of collaboration with the urology coding nerd crew. So it worked (laughs) out well. I thought so too. And I thought some of the things that we were able to use within the seminar, like using the technology to like new technology and or existing technology to make the point and use those as examples on various coding issues that are happening in urology. Ray, how about you? What do you think? I was impressed with the attendees. There were a lot of young urologists attending the seminar. So it's good to see that that they are seeing the light and the need for understanding the concepts of coding. All right. Yeah, and I thought the other piece was, going back to the discussion, is having the urologists and coders chime in and have different discussions so that one hand sees what the other hand is doing, which doesn't often, doesn't always happen. So that, I thought that was good. All right. 
Let's go ahead and answer some questions. We have a question from Floyd. Floyd said, the seminar this past week was great. I have one question that I asked during the seminar, but still not uh, sure of the correct answer. For an initial hospital consultation, I've been using 99223 and generally 99232 for follow-up visits. Is this correct? Mark, you want to... See if you can yeah. explain that a little more thoroughly. Okay. So we'll, we'll answer a couple of different questions within this question. Generally, hospital visits, when you're billing hospital codes, the initial inpatient visit codes, which are 99221, 99222, and 99223, are appropriate now that we don't have many of our payers paying for the initial inpatient consultation codes. That should be the right code for that first or that initial visit. And the way it's designed within Medicare and many of the payers that follow that, the principal physician, so let's say somebody else was the primary admitter of the patient, would bill the 2-2 code, 992-2122 or 2-3, with an AI modifier. And then any consultant that came into the picture would then report their efforts under an appropriate initial code without a modifier and that and both should be paid now we've got a few payers out there that are not allowing for that initial inpatient visit or or uh, maybe I should say and we have a few of our principal admitting physicians who are not using the AI which are causing some problems with 99222. The secondary problem that you might have is diagnosis coding. I know typically the payers are only going to pay one E&M visit per diagnosis, or they're at least going to take a closer look if everybody's following the same diagnosis. You want to check with your other physicians that are involved in the hospital care to make sure they're doing what they can so that you can get paid. For those payers who will only pay one initial inpatient code visit per stay, and there are a few of them out there, um, then you would immediately jump to the 99232. Generally, the way Dr. Seskin has been billing this is correct with the initial inpatient visit for the first day and the subsequent visit for the second day. Now, the second question I want to jump in there, he specifically said 223 for the first day and 232 for the second. The I would question whether or not the 223 is the right level of code. A lot of those, when we look at the crosswalk, if you remember, the amount of medical decision-making required to hit a 223 is exactly the same as hitting a a 205 or a 215. So medical decision-making wise, with the patient already admitted to the hospital, you are unlikely to have that presenting problem hit that level five. Now, you may have enough data on that patient between orders and interpretations of images and those types of things to hit a level five. And then if your decision is to take the patient for surgery, then you could get a three, but most of the time we see that in urology, that initial visit fitting more of what a level four medical decision-making is 
with a, a chronic with exacerbation or an undiagnosed new problem or acute with systemic issues hitting a level four. The data, you may not have the imaging right off the bat, so that would probably hit a, would hit a four, even with a lot of labs that the patient has that you're looking at. And then the decision for surgery or meds might get you to a level five or a level four, but that first visit is more commonly in urology a two, two, two. The follow-up visits bounce around. A two, two, a two, three, two, or a two, three, one are the more common with two, three, two being the most common. And then the occasional two, three, three, again, based on data and major surgery relative to medical decision-making. On the right track, might want to take a closer look at the levels that you chose or choose for your first visit and then your follow-up visits. Ray, any comments? No, that was well explained. All right. And Mark, the only question I had or the further explanation is, what exactly does the AI do in this situation? So the AI is basically a modifier that says, I am the one who did the paperwork to get the patient in the hospital, made the initial decision. So if a payer were to say, I'm only going to pay the initial visit, then that AI guy should be the one to get paid. Um, and But it also says that I may have been the admitting physician, but I most likely called in some other physician because of the patient's presenting problem. So uh, you're going to get another initial visit, which is what Medicare originally intended it, intended it to be. All right. All right. We, let's go on to the next question from Alba. And Alba asks, seeking clarification for the best way to code. Ureteroneocystostomy. Uh, anastomosis of single ureter to bladder with a vesico so as hitch with the robotic approach. Uh, and she asks, is it the enlisted code or the 50948? All right. What you got here, Mark? First, that was easy for you to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> second, Alba, I, we did a, a couple of dives on this just to look around. And, and this is a good question. And what do we, what do you do relative to something that's not a hundred percent the same, but is really predominantly the same procedure with a little bit of extra work. So if you look at the open codes for ureteroneocystostomy, they do have an open code for the psoas hitch. And when you run the comparison between the standard ureteroneocystostomy and the neocystostomy with the psoas hitch, you'll see that the work values differ by only about two and a half, per, two and a half points between the two. And both of those are lower than the laparoscopic version of the ureteroneocystostomy. So in this case, looking at where those two things fall, I would steer clear of the unlisted code and I would go with the 50948. And if my operative note gave me enough 
additional support to use the 22 modifier, I would append the 22 modifier to the 50948. I think that's your best path forward in this particular case, rather than jumping into the unlisted code or using an additional unlisted code for the SOAS hitch while you're already doing a ureter neocystostomy. Ray, your thoughts? You guys are getting better at answering, uh, pronouncing all of these fancy procedure names. Mark's an old pro. <laughs> I'm still a rookie or still but getting better. As, How about that? <laughs> but as far as the coding, I certainly agree with Mark. The 22 would probably, if it's well documented in the time, extra time it took to do the SOAS hitch is significant, then the 22 would be my preference of the way to go. Excellent. All I'm right. glad you I'm glad you agree with me and I'm I'm going to add in that one of our pronunciation problems that we have is we're painters. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've had years of training with little southern tweaks and things that that we're having to overcome, so. <laughs> Show enough. All right. All right, let's move on to the next question. It's from Tori. Tori asks and states that I've received several questions recently on whether or not certain procedures can be performed in office by an APP alone. An example of the 51720 or the 95972, the Eligard or Firmagon injections. She says most codes, as long as they are not surgical, can be performed by an APP since they are a qualified health care provider. Correct. Not sure where I can find info on this. I did check state statutes, but found nothing specific about which procedures. Thanks. All right. Mark, what do you got on what an APP can do? Yeah, so that the list of things an APP can do has been growing ever since APPs came into the marketplace. We certainly have to review any state restrictions that are out there, and there are some. Whether or not an APP can read a radiologic image or how much diagnostic stuff they can do. So there are restrictions at the state that need to be checked. But generally, from Medicare's perspective, they're fairly open to as long as the physician and the APP feel that individual is qualified and trained to provide the service and you don't have any state licensure blocks that the APP could do it or provide the procedure and charge for it as both the billing and the rendering physician if, in fact, the APP is alone in the office. Now, there are plenty of physicians out there, urologists, that are not as comfortable allowing an APP to provide some services without a physician in the office. So, Remember, you're still under the incident two rules for services that are performed in the office. So if the physician is in the office when the service is provided and it's within the scope of what the APP can provide and the physician made the plan of care, you do have the option of billing those types of things. Incident two, just like you mentioned Eligard and Firmagon, which may be in some states allowed to be done by nurses or MAs, depending on what is available in your state. And so 
you really need to take a good look at both the reimbursement flow, because remember the AP gets paid a little less than the physician, but from an individual reimbursement standpoint or a specific service. But the other side, yeah, if you consider that the physician's out generating full-born revenues elsewhere and the patients need the care, it's allowed to be done. Sometimes taking that 15% hit is worthwhile to keep your doc doing other things because two working is better than one. Ray, your thoughts? No, nothing to add. All right. We'll, we'll do two other ones and we'll make them fairly quick. Lucy asks, if a patient comes in for a routine SPT change or Lupron injection and provider states return in a week or month for the next change or injection, is that enough to bill? Is that enough for a modifier 25 event to be billed? Not right. with the documentation she provided. Yeah, this goes back to the standard discussion about modifier 25. Modifier 25 is significant and separately identifiable. So both. So providing a patient a tube change and telling them to come back in a week, that one doesn't pass the sniff test for me. If there is an update to the patient's overall presenting problem and certainly considerations of other things going on within the patient and a decision to continue the using an SP tube change instead of another option, that one smells a little better, but again, must be documented. That documentation of the significant separately identifiable event really needs to be very clear and it really needs to meet that first one of significant. The routine SP tube change or a Lupron injection and return in a week or a month, that one is really hard for me to see that you could create medically necessary and appropriate documentation to support a 25. But if you got something else going on, you got a little more decision-making in the process, maybe. Totally agree. In looking at significant and separately identifiable, significant has to do with time and effort. And this does not document enough time and effort to fit that. And separately identifiable means separately identifiable service. In other words, it's not related to the procedure or the surgical package that goes with that procedure. When you're talking about the disease process or some other disease process, yes. But uh, I agree with Mark. That's too close and not enough. All right. Okay, final thing we'll cover, and I know this is this can be a can of worms, so I don't know if we want to hold it to a the specific question that Lisa asks, but it's regarding the new nine nine four five nine. And uh, Lisa asks for the nine nine four five nine. We have a urogynecologist that does pelvic exam on almost all of her patients unsupervised. Can we still add this code to her visits? Thank you. All right. I don't know if you want to answer this in the short way or the long way, because I'm sure we're going to have more discussions on this, but uh, I'll toss it over to you, Mark. 
Yes. My short answer is yes. I was, I've been doing a lot of digging on this code. And when we look at the, the mention of the fact that Medicare allotted four minutes of staff time to the, for, for being a chaperone, there were a couple of folks that have stated that you had to have a chaperone in order to charge for that. This is a practice expense only value and four minutes of of clinical staff time in the Medicare fee schedule equates to about $2.50 at the most. Really, it's more like a buck 70. So it's not much of that value. I am going to, I've been doing some additional digging and my suspicion because the overall discussion was about both the tools or the equipment required and the um, actual staff time that's involved, that ultimately you've got $22 in total, which fits closer to a speculum pack or some of the other requirements that would be part of a female physical exam. And then, of course, you got the other argument that extra staff time is required to get a, a female patient up in the sturts and situated and undressed and that whole supervision process is there. So, you know, there, there's some additional arguments that are out there. That was a long answer, but the short answer is that I have seen nothing in the CPT code, nothing in the Medicare regs that says you have to have a chaperone. I actually think that digging deeper on the way the fee schedule came out the door it was not primarily based on the chaperone. I think those comments in CPT or in the Medicare fee schedule were a bit misleading and shorthand. So now, if you offered a chaperone and the patient refused or the patient acknowledged that there wasn't going to be a chaperone, you're, you should absolutely document that. But the presence of a chaperone is to me, not required for 99459. And until I see something otherwise, I'm going to pretty strongly support that that is not a requirement. In fact, not only strongly, I'm going to put a stake in the ground. I think you're good. <laughs> Ray, your thoughts? Well, I totally agree with Mark on this one. If you read it, I think it does have to do with the pelvic exam more than the chevron. All right. All right, let's wind this up here, and uh, I'm going to share a few thoughts, and then we'll get some final thoughts from you two and wrap this up. All right, first, I wanted to share, I don't know if our audience all knows that PRS does do billing. We are a coding company that does billing, so we know the language of coding, and that does help us with our billing. And not only do we do the billing and do it in a very exceptional way because of our coding prowess, we also help our clients learn how to document to make sure that they are uh, reimbursed for all the services they are providing. So if you want to check out a, our billing procedures, processes, get a quote, you can go to this episode page. If you go to PRS network forward slash 181, there's a link where you can schedule a call with our team and we'll get the information we need, give you a quote and let you know the PRS advantage for billing. All right. 
And I also want to say thank you to ModMed uh, for supporting our podcast. ModMed is, if you're in the market for EHR or practice management system, we encourage you to check them out. Uh, you can go to modmed.com forward slash PRS network and see some specials for our listening audience. All right. Let's get some final thoughts and close this out. Mark, final thoughts. Yeah. When we had our discussions at the the seminar, it's really exciting and great to see how folks are really taking a close look at how to bill appropriately for everything they do. We have a fairly complex system of rules and regulations layered on top of a coding and nomenclature setup that is not as e- as straightforward and certainly not as understandable to those outside of healthcare as we could. Keep it up, everyone. Paying attention to all these rules and regulations and some of the nuances that are out there, given the fact that physicians haven't had a raise in reimbursement for about 12 years now, it's you've got to you've got to pay attention to the little things in order to make sure that you can remain financially viable so that you can be clinically relevant to your patients. Ray, final thoughts. Those are all good points. And Scott, I'll add to what you have pitched on billing is that we at PRS are interested in your success. And we've created a lot of support to assist you in performing at your peak at whatever level you need, whether it's education or support. We're here for you. All right. All right. That's all we got for today's episode. Thank you all for listening. Take us out, Ray. Happy coding. Thank you for listening to the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast, where we help urologists and their staff maximize income and efficiencies so there's time and energy for patient care and a happy life. Special thanks to Carl Painter for the music today. You can find his music on Spotify under his record label, The Juicery. 